I'm Bertie Ahern, Taoiseach of Ireland from 1997 to 2008. And this is an extended interview from the story of the Good Friday Agreement as I remember it. Senator George Mitchell was the independent chair of the talks that led to the Good Friday Agreement and played a vital role in the successful outcome of the peace process. Over the next hour, you'll hear my full conversation with George in which he details the brief given to him by President Clinton, how he dealt with the big personalities during the talks and his thoughts on the legacy of the Good Friday Agreement. I began by asking him how he got involved in the politics of Northern Ireland. Well, I got involved uh, a couple of years earlier, Bertie. Uh, I was serving in the United States Senate. My term expired in December uh, of 1994, and I decided not to seek re-election and to retire. President Clinton was then in office. I'd worked closely with him. I was the majority leader of the United States Senate and managed his program in the Senate uh, as best we could. And when I told him that I was going to retire, he first tried to talk me out of it. And then when I told him I'd made up my mind, he said to me in a casual remark, well, he said, if something ever comes up that I think you could be helpful with, uh, would you be willing to do so? And I said, sure, as long as it wasn't full time. And uh, that's the way it was left. That was in the spring of 1994. Several months later, shortly before I did retire, the president asked if I would serve as his representative to Northern Ireland. He briefed me on the issues as he knew them. I was not deeply familiar with the long history and issues in Northern Ireland. Although my father's parents were born in Ireland and emigrated to the United States, to Boston, where he was born, uh, sadly, he never knew his parents. Uh, his mother died uh, shortly after his birth. His father couldn't care for the children. So my father and his uh, siblings were raised in Catholic orphanages in the Boston area. After several years there, my father was adopted by an elderly childless couple from the state of Maine, and uh, they were not Irish. And so my father was raised in a household in which uh, Ireland and Irish issues were not prominent or really even evident at all. I don't think I ever heard him say the word Ireland. So uh, despite my father's Irish heritage, I, uh, I didn't really know too much about it, but I agreed to do it. Uh, my initial task, indeed at the outset, it was my only task, was to organize and supervise a White House conference on trade with and investment in Northern Ireland uh, by American companies. I first went to Northern Ireland in January of 1995, uh, just a week or two after I left office. The conference was to be held in May of that year at the White House in Washington. And I traveled around Northern Ireland some. I met with political leaders business and community leaders, and got to know more and more about the conflict. And then we held the conference uh, at the White House in May. It was very successful. There was a large crowd, quite a lot of enthusiasm. As you will recall, Bertie, the IRA had declared a ceasefire in August of 1994, which was the summer preceding the conference. That was followed in October of that year by ceasefires by the loyalist parties. And there was some hope and that, that there might be an opportunity there. So the White House conference was timely in that the President Clinton said that he wanted to build a foundation on which the Irish and British governments and the political leaders of Northern Ireland uh, could hopefully act, make whatever contribution we could. So the conference went very well. And uh, the night before the conference was held, the president asked me if I would extend my stay for six months. 
to spend another six months in Northern Ireland trying to promote trade, investment, encourage the parties to get together. Uh, I did so. And uh, before the year was out, I was drawn in much more deeply than I had ever anticipated. I had no idea what was going to happen. But as you will recall, Bertie, the, although you were not in office then, John Bruton was the prime minister in Ireland. And yeah, yeah. Uh, John Major was the prime minister in the United Kingdom. Uh, the governments were trying to cre get negotiations started. There had been several prior efforts, including uh, in the early 1990s, uh, headed by a, a prominent Australian judicial figure. Uh, uh, it didn't succeed. And in looking at the talks from a post-talks perspective, the governments concluded that one of the major problems was there was a conflict going on, but the talks in the 1990s and earlier had excluded from the talks those parties that had any affiliation with paramilitary organizations. That was, of course, Sinn Féin on the nationalist side and the loyalists on the unionist side. Uh, and uh, I was told by government officials on both sides that they concluded that you, you're not going to be able to end the conflict unless you can bring into the talks the people who are engaged in and conducting the conflict. The problem, of course, was that the political parties in Northern Ireland, which were not affiliated with militias, they called them the constitutional parties, didn't want to sit with those who did have such connections, and they wanted the total disarmament of the paramilitary organizations before the talks could start. The phrase became adopted, the decommissioning of weapons in advance of the talks. So that became the British government's policy, but there was a lot of opposition to it, a lot of confusion, doubt, and disagreement. And so the UK Prime Minister John Major asked me and uh, two other of my colleagues, one, the former Prime Minister of Finland, Harry Holkery, uh, who was selected by the Irish government, and the other, uh, General John de Chastelaine of Canada. He had been the chief of the Canadian Defence Forces and then the Canadian ambassador to the United States. So I was named the chairman and my two colleagues with me were asked by the UK and Irish prime ministers to conduct a thorough review of this issue and to make recommendations on how the parties could engage in negotiations. We, we began immediately, this was the, about the 1st of December, of uh, 1995 and the prime ministers set a tight deadline they said they wanted a report within 60 days so prime minister hokery uh, general de chastelaine and i spent pretty much most of those two months except for a very brief break, break at christmas in northern ireland meeting with and interviewing a very large number of individuals and uh, political leaders, business leaders, community leaders, uh, uh, trying to get a sense of how this process could proceed. Uh, it became very clear uh, early and was confirmed uh, through our talks over two months that there was very little support in any part of Northern Ireland for the concept of prior decommissioning and even those who supported it acknowledged to us that it was unlikely to be acceptable to the parties affiliated with paramilitaries so we had to search for an alternative mechanism how to satisfy the concerns and fears of the constitutional parties that when 
the parties affiliated with paramilitaries enter the talks, they would not do so under circumstances where the first time they were frustrated, they would activate their paramilitaries. That would really be inducing more conflict rather than preventing more conflict. So uh, I'm trying to make a very long story short. Uh, to deal with that, we recommended a set of principles. They came to be known as the Mitchell Principles, in which any party entering the talks had to publicly acknowledge and commit to opposition to any use of force or terror and to support democratic and peaceful approaches to the disagreements that they had. This was intended to be a way to reassure the constitutional parties and the public that the political parties affiliated with paramilitaries would not use the existence of those paramilitaries as a threat during the talks, that they had to come in and publicly commit to democratic principles and to renounce the use of violence. It was not decommissioning. They didn't give up their weapons at that time. But we recommended that the talks start if they would agree to that, and then gradually, as time proceeded, both the negotiations and the decommissioning could occur in parallel. Uh, at first, uh, Prime Minister Major uh, didn't like the idea, but uh, over time, in a relatively short period of time, uh, he came around to it with some additional uh, mechanisms that we also recommended, the most prominent one being an election in Northern Ireland to choose delegates to what was called the forum, which would be a, a body or an assembly that could discuss. It had no legislative power, uh, but it was as those who supported it uh, to be a forum in which there could be democratic debate over the issues. Those who didn't support it called it just a talking shop. But the important point was that those elected to the forum would be eligible to serve as delegates to the peace negotiations that they hoped would follow. And that's, of course, what happened. The, uh, we submitted our report uh, at the end of January. Over the next few months, uh, the parties uh, uh, and the governments negotiated. There were considerable disagreements, a good bit of opposition to the elections on the part of the nationalists. The unionists had other points that they didn't like, but to their great credit, uh, the governments uh, hammered out agreements. And on uh, June 10th, 1996, uh, Prime Minister's uh, Major and Bruton came to Belfast and the talks began. Uh, about a month earlier than that, sometime in mid to late May, uh, the prime ministers called me. I was at my home in the United States and they said, basically, look, uh, the, the, uh, the report by you and your colleagues really enabled us to get these negotiations started. So we'd like you to come back and serve as the independent chairman of the talks themselves. And they, of course, made the same calls to Oakley and to Shashlane. And so the three of us agreed, returned to Belfast, and began the negotiations uh, on June 10th of that year. Well, I, I think, um, George, <laughs> It's clear that you, you never intended getting stuck in so so long, but thank God you did. But I think when we got when we got up to that summer of ninety six, um, of course Sinn Fein weren't in the talks because uh they they had the IRA had gone back into their trouble again over the decommissioning issue. And then we we drifted on through through ninety six, um uh, in, into maybe we pick up at the beginning of 
of of of ninety of ninety well ninety seven when um, that was the election year for Tony Blair election year for me, but at at that stage as you went through that ninety six ninety seven period, was it clear to you that you know, we were going to have to try and get Sinn Fein in into the talks if we were to make progress? Yes. Uh... Uh, what happened initially, of course, when we met in the talks, uh, is that uh, Sinn Féin had not agreed to the, the Mitchell principles. There was opposition on the part uh, of the unionist parties uh, uh, to their position. There was widespread apprehension on the part of I would say most of the unionists, that uh, decommissioning would not ever occur and that uh, uh, they they were concerned. And so they kept pushing on the decommissioning issue. And some of them said uh, under no circumstances would they uh, sit with in talks uh, if Sinn Féin entered them. Uh, there was really very little progress. It was mostly just a disagreement and uh, uh, insults and invective and uh, uh, allegations back and forth. It took us about three months uh, to adopt a set of rules for the talks. What had happened was that when the British and Irish governments organized the talks, they had the two governments had prepared uh, a set of documents which were intended to serve as the basis for the talks and the rules under which the talks would occur. Uh, some of the parties uh, objected to that. They felt that the political parties in Northern Ireland, there were 10 of them at that time in the talks, that they should be the ones to decide the rules. And ultimately, that position prevailed. It was a long and complicated argument, too, too complex to get into the details here. But ultimately, they did adopt rules, although that took uh, uh, several months to do so. Uh, the talks then uh, got underway, and as I said, they were uh, not productive. It was it was a lot of... Uh, 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 political speeches, a lot of uh, insults back and forth. And so through that uh, first year, uh, there was not what you would call any significant progress. Uh, there was uh, great tension uh, uh, in that uh, first summer uh, because of the uh, conflicts over the uh, marching season at, around the celebration of the Battle of the Boyne. Uh, there was a great deal of uh, uh, violence, a lot of uh, burnt out cars, buildings, some people were injured. And so tensions were were really quite high. Uh, and we continued into uh, uh, 1997, uh, uh, making very little progress. Uh, then in the uh, uh, late spring or early summer of that year, uh, Sinn Féin uh, finally entered the talks. And, and they went through the same process that everyone else had, uh, had to go through. And I basically uh, created a process by which the leaders uh, of the party would enter the large meeting room in which all of the other delegates were present and would stand up and make a strong commitment to adherence to the Mitchell principles. And then they were required to go outside, uh, outside the gates of the location where the talks were being conducted in Stormont and hold a press conference to say the same thing publicly. And Sinn Féin did that. So they entered the talks. That triggered a very strong and hostile reaction from uh, some of the unionist parties. Two of them, uh, the Democratic Unionist Party, led by Dr. Paisley, which was then 
one of the two large unionist parties, and a smaller group, uh, which called itself UKIP. Uh, they uh, affiliated with Dr. Paisley's group. They walked out, uh, never to return. Uh, the other major unionist party was the Ulster Unionist Party, headed by uh, David Trimble. And in September, they and the loyalist parties, there were two loyalist parties, one headed by David Irvine, the other headed by Gary, uh, uh, Gary, Gary McMichael. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Gary McMichael, who was a, a really uh, positive contribution. I greatly admired uh, both Gary and David. Uh, they had been through very difficult uh, periods in their lives. My understanding was that Gary's father had been killed by the IRA. David himself had been convicted of an attempted bombing, and sentenced to prison where he served six years. And both of them emerged out of their difficulties as strong uh, and very powerful advocates for peace and played, although their parties were quite small, played a disproportionately large role in the talks that followed and the agreement that ultimately was reached. So uh, the Ulster Unionists, led by Trimble, and the two Loyalist parties, led by Gary McMichael and uh, David Irvine, re-entered the talks in September. And so the talks resumed uh, in uh, uh, 19... 97. In the meantime, uh, also of great significance, as, as you, of course, personally will recall, in May of that year, Tony Blair had been elected the Prime Minister of the UK. And in June, the following months, you, Bertie Ahern, were elected to be the Taoiseach, uh, the Prime Minister of Ireland. And uh, their, your predecessors uh, on your side, John Bruton and Albert Reynolds and others deserve great credit for building the foundation upon the, which these talks were constructed. And as I said, John Major on the UK side was tremendous in helping move this process forward. But you and uh, Tony Blair were able to achieve a, a relationship and a a sense of forward movement uh, that uh, I, I think enabled the talks to get going again and hopefully offered uh, some sense of progress, which ultimately, uh, about a year later in April of 1998, led to the agreement. Yeah, I, I suppose, George, looking, um, looking back over the, the period when we came in, the ceasefires were restored in in July. The talks started in in uh, September, restarted in September. Uh, David Trimble, in fairness to him, stayed in. He had the support of the two small loyalist parties, as you said, and the PUP UDP. That gave him the strength to stay stay in. And then we had that that run up to Christmas, which we again was. Stop, start, stop, start. You, 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 as always, show great patience dealing with the parties. And then, then we had that difficult Christmas period because nothing to do with the talks, but there was some violence outside the talks. The um, Billy Wright was shot in the prison on, on the day after Christmas Day. And then there were some issues with IRA guys and some Lilas guys were shot. So we we ha we were they we ha were giving them the red card as we say in football. They were in and out of the talks, and then I suppose George, if if we come to um, if we come to the spring of, um, you know, probably March. I remember I was over, uh, with Bill Clinton. We gave a report for March, and then then I think you the 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 big significant move was made. You you, you decided that we had done. A, a lot of talking, there'd been a lot of talking for a few years and then you declared um, a deadline. So you, you might just pick up that period where I think you, you were happy that we had done enough of talking but we now had to make some decisions 
And if you go back over that few weeks period on the run into the the Easter period for the Good Friday Agreement, but where you decided that this was the time to call, call a date. Yes, uh, Bertie, let me go back uh, briefly over the period that you described. Um, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, we had a very difficult period. I guess you'd call it rock bottom uh, over the winter of uh, 1997 and 1998. Uh, just before Christmas, uh, I convened a meeting of the party leaders. The talks, as you know, Bertie, were conducted typically the plenary talks in a very large room. There were then eight political parties, the DUP and the UKRP having left for good, but there were eight political parties, two governments, and the chairman, uh, and probably 75 to 100 people in the room. Each group had staff and others. There was a note taker. It was a, it was a, a relatively formal process. And so at uh, General DeShastlin's suggestion, I convened a meeting of the uh, just the two leaders of each party in a smaller room, no, no reporting. Uh, everybody hopefully would speak frankly. And uh, uh, we presented to the party leaders a, a single page document, which just had on it a, a, our best efforts to set forth the questions, the challenges that the parties had to deal with and reach agreement on in order to, in effect, ensure a permanent peace. Uh, and we wanted them to adopt that. Not, not, these were not the answers to the questions, just were the wording of the questions themselves. Uh, at first, the meeting went quite well, the, the quite positive talk between them. And then as so often happened in oral and suddenly, without any warning, somebody said something that the other found insulting and the insult came back the other way. And the meeting just disintegrated in a very short period of time into a negative uh, name calling and insulting discussion of the type that we had had hundreds of days before, every day back and forth arguing about history and who said what to whom. And so we adjourned, and I thought that had to be rock bottom. Uh, I left and returned to the United States for Christmas, uh, but uh, the governments uh, had decided in advance of that that there was no progress being made in Belfast, and perhaps if they changed the locations for the meetings, uh, uh, there might be some progress. So the January talks were set uh, to take place in London. Uh, I'm sorry, the the uh, yeah the January talks in London. That's right, and then the February talks in Dublin. So we came home for Christmas, and then on the 27th, uh, just after. Two days later, I got the call from uh, Belfast that uh, uh, Billy Wright, uh, a prominent unionist paramilitary leader who was in prison at the time, had been killed by a group of Republican prisoners. And that touched off a round of tit-for-tat violence that accelerated, threatened, of course, the ceasefires and the talks themselves. So when we gathered in London, in January, uh, the mood was very negative, and it was not in any sense a negotiation. The parties were angry back and forth, and one of the consequences was that the governments uh, moved to expel uh, the uh, Loyalist Party, which was led by Gary McMichael because they felt that some paramilitaries affiliated with that party had been involved in the violence. It was an extremely difficult and controversial uh, 
conclusion and really infected the entire process. So the governments asked me to go to the room in which uh, Gary and his colleagues were to break the news to them, which I did. Uh, and I, as I said earlier, I liked and admired Gary. I felt he was genuine and a strong advocate for peace. So I said to them, uh, I know you're going to be very angry and upset about this, but please don't go out and say anything that would represent a final break because we're never going to get an agreement without you guys in it. And, and we'll all try hard to make this a, a suspension for a fixed period of time rather than a permanent expulsion. Well, they were understandably upset, but they, they went out, they made public statements, they didn't make a final break. And several weeks later, they returned for the final push. Well, that was in London. Then we got to Dublin. And of course, the unionist parties angry that a loyalist party had been expelled now insisted that as retaliation, Sinn Féin be expelled because of the uh, participation of the IRA in what was the escalating violence. And we had a very difficult and controversial session in Dublin that focused almost entirely on that. Uh, in both London and Dublin, there was very little discussion of the, the real issues that uh, the parties faced that we were trying, we the chairman were trying to get them to focus on. So in similar fashion, Sinn Féin was expelled. But once again, uh, uh, when I informed them of that, uh, I made it clear that this was to be a suspension, not a permanent expulsion, and they later returned for the final push. It was on the flight from uh, Dublin back to New York in uh, late February that I decided that we had to make some major change. When the talks were first established, the prime ministers, uh, uh, Blair and Bruton, had set an overall deadline uh, of uh, May of 1998. But nobody regarded that as a firm deadline. And it was quite clear that the civil servants on both sides were prepared to keep the talks going as long as they could because they held, felt, and rightly so, that if the talks ended, uh, uh, there would be a, a descent into uh, an extremely high level of violence. On the other hand, uh, I felt that unless we accelerated the deadline and made it firm and unbreakable, clear for all to see, that we'd never reach an agreement. They'd been trying for two years. There'd been no serious progress. And that the only way to focus them on getting an agreement was to set a deadline that was unbreakable. Uh, I talked to DeShastlin and Hokery. They were in agreement. Uh, Bertie, you will recall, with, and we then discussed with your government and with Prime Minister Blair's government the notion of a firm deadline. Uh, everybody, the governments were in agreement. So when we returned in March, uh, we spent most of a month getting the parties to agree. It was very difficult. There were eight political parties, two governments, and so everybody had to agree. So each time somebody made a change, you had to go back to the beginning and get others who had already agreed to make the change. So it took about a month. It took actually longer to get the agreement to have a firm deadline than the actual <laughs> negotiation at the end. But uh, that was when I first felt uh, a sense of hope. Uh, before that, it had been uh, a year and a half, nearly going on two years of despair and doubt, disagreement, uh, escalating violence. It was very hard to be optimistic and hopeful, but uh, what, what, led me to that conclusion was that Hokery de Shastlin and I, as the independent chairman of the talks, had no authority to impose a deadline. 
The deadline had to be agreed by everybody, by both governments and by the eight political parties that remained. And the fact that these eight parties agreed to the deadline, to me, meant that they were serious about getting an agreement. I think it was based in large part on fear, fear of the horrific violence that would resume on a widespread scale, probably more widespread than during the previous 25 years of the Troubles. And so they were concerned about that. They did not want that to happen. And we, Shaslin, Hoker, and I argued that point very strongly to them. We said to them, if, if this breaks down and conflict resumes and hundreds and perhaps thousands of people are killed, this is all you will be remembered for. You, you've spent a lifetime in public service, but nobody's going to remember anything else you did. This is what they'll remember, that you failed. And they felt that way. They felt strongly. They did not want that violence to resume. So we get into that uh, last two weeks. And uh, thankfully, uh, Bertie, as you will recall, you and uh, Tony Blair came to Belfast for the last week and uh, uh, took control of the negotiations, uh, uh, did an outstanding job, both of you, in bringing, uh, uh, bringing the parties on board and uh, finally getting the agreement on uh, April 10th, Good Friday of 1998. Well, I, I think if, if you didn't set that date and as you said, get everybody else to agree that this was this was the final push. It would have went on and on, and and I don't think we ever would have got there. So I think George, the the fact you did that was 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 just so so good. And then I suppose you know when we we look back, we 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 know what happened. It was a comprehensive agreement. It it covered all aspects. It covered the three strands: the the internal position in Northern Ireland, the North South, the the East West. And we also included the, you know, the reform of the criminal justice systems, the policing, and you know, you know, you know, all of the, all of the the major issues that we really had to deal with. And I think one, okay, there were some arguments about we we weren't clear enough in some areas, and decommissioning was a was a problem area for us, and continued on to be for a good few years. But uh, ultimately, I suppose, George, it, 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 it was the fact that it was a comprehensive agreement and you had done most of the negotiation with the parties on this for a few years that people were able to support it and, and, and vote for it because we, we didn't take too many easy options. I think it, it, it was an agreement that covered all the, all the issues that were on the table. Uh, yes, uh, uh, Bertie. Uh, uh, you didn't ask about it, but uh, I do want to say to the audience that's listening in for the historical record, as I've already uh, said in the book I wrote about the talks, uh, there was a critical juncture uh, when uh, your uh, courage and determination made possible uh, the continuation of the discussions. And... Uh, uh, again, you haven't raised it, uh, not that you would, but, but I want to bring it up and then I'll get to respond to your question about the comprehensive nature of the agreement. There were three strands to the talks, as you noted. One was relations within Northern Ireland between two communities. The second was the relationship between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And the third was the relationship east and west between the Republic of Ireland and the United Kingdom. This concept had been initially proposed, thought through, and developed by John Hume, who was a, uh, a uh, one of the great men of Northern Ireland history, really the history of all of Ireland, uh, and uh, uh, who led the Social Democratic and Labour Party into the talks were along with, with a great team. He had Seamus Mallon, Mark Durkin, Sean Farron, many others who contributed greatly to it. Uh, and the talks uh, essentially were based on a concept 
which John had uh, developed uh, for uh, prior to the ceasefires in 1994, going all the way back to 1988, uh, John had sought to establish a sort of a united nationalist front. And uh, Albert Reynolds, one of your predecessors, was then in office as Taoiseach, and John and uh, Jerry Adams had met over a period of time to do that and were successful in creating generally a nationalist front. And the unionists, of course, looked to the UK government because they're part of the UK and, of course, felt that the UK government, while also being the protector of the rights of all of the people of Northern Ireland, were uh, closely affiliated with the major unionist parties uh, because they were, of course, a part of that country. And one of the major issues was whether Northern Ireland would continue to be part of the United Kingdom, along with Scotland, Wales, and England, or would become part of a United Ireland issue that went back for many, many decades. Um, Deshaslin Hoker and I were trying to assemble uh, uh, an agreement being negotiated by eight political parties and two governments, which is a very difficult task. And uh, after the at the end of the first week, Bertie, you will recall, you and Tony Blair met in London to discuss Strand 2, which was the relationship between uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Uh, we then supervised or collated, really pulled together the all of the talks on Strands 1 and 3. Uh, the agreement that you reached with Blair uh, in London uh, uh, provided for a large number of uh, north-south institutions uh, that the unionists uh, uh, wouldn't accept because they were fearful uh, that it was a precursor or laying the foundation to a united Ireland. They wanted a more limited uh, range of uh, contact and number of institutions. And... Uh, but you and Blair reached agreement. I don't know what happened I, as between uh, uh, Blair and the unionist leadership, particularly Blair and David Trimble. Uh, but when that was sent over to us in Belfast, this was on the weekend before we got the agreement, uh, the unionists strongly objected and uh, uh, insisted that uh, uh, that section be renegotiated because they would not accept it. Uh, that led to a crisis. And uh, you and I talked, Bertie, you talked with many others, I'm sure. And uh, you were deeply distracted by the death of your mother and her funeral at that very time. But you made the decision, uh, I think, against the advice of many of your advisors, to agree to renegotiate the talks, which was a a tremendous, courageous decision that made possible all that followed, and that those uh, that part of the negotiation negotiated agreement was reviewed, reconsidered. There were some changes made, and it was deemed acceptable. And we got to the end. Uh, you and Blair came, I think, the first of that week and spent, uh, uh, except for the times when you had to fly back to uh, Dublin to attend your mother's funeral, were really going at it about 24 hours a day and helped uh, everyone bring the process to the uh, successful conclusion that we had. And I, I will say for both of you that uh, you did a great job of negotiation that week. Prime Minister Blair was especially helpful on the last day when the Ulster Unionists still had uh, concerns uh, and uh, problems with the lack of progress on decommissioning of weapons, that they'd gone through all this period and the weapons were not be, being decommissioned or at a rate fast enough for them or really for anybody. 
uh, and uh, uh, in order to encourage the unionists to reach to to agree to the proposed agreement, uh, Prime Minister Blair reassured them of his firm commitment on decommissioning. And as we now know from the historical record, although it took some time afterward, there was a complete and full decommissioning supervised in part by General Chastelaine because of his uh, extensive uh, military background. So it, uh, everybody was exhausted at the end, uh, but uh, they came together in what was a moment uh, of great courage, great vision, great strength uh, demonstrated by the political leaders of Northern Ireland, by the leaders of the Irish and UK governments. Uh, and most importantly, by the people of North America who wanted to end the violence, supported an end to violence, and supported this agreement uh, overwhelmingly in the Republic and by a large margin uh, in Northern Ireland ultimately. Well, well that, 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 I tell you, was one historic day and one historic period. Um, one of the things... George, I, I know you came back afterwards to help us on on some other issues. I'm, I'm I'm not really covering them in this period, but I do I do just want to to note that you, you you did come back even after the agreement was passed when we ran into some difficulties. But one thing I just like for the historical record, George, was you to deal with people all the way through. Um, just if you give me a, a few words about some of the main players, I think you've already mentioned. John Hume and and the success of, of John, um, but some some of the other characters we had to deal with. If you could just give me a few lines on them, David Trimble, for example, how you found him as a, a person to have to work with. Well, they were all very strong leaders. They, it was very, it's obviously very difficult to to be in politics in a society torn by violence. Uh, and uh, they had been through that for really all of their adult lives. That had been the central dominant issue in Northern Ireland for a very long period of time, going back really to the partition in 1922. There were periodic eruptions of violence. The most recent one, the one best known, began in the late 1960s and early 70s, became known as the Troubles. and continued until the time of the agreement. During that period, according to the statistical agency in Northern Ireland, about 3,500 people were killed and about 50,000 people were injured. Uh, by contrast, uh, uh, in the period between the agreement of 1998 and the present, uh, there have been recorded only about 160 uh, deaths, conflict-related deaths in Northern Ireland. So, in effect, uh, the widespread terror of violence and fear in Northern Ireland has ended. And uh, this was very, very difficult for many of these political leaders. Uh, uh, their lives were threatened, their families' lives were threatened, their careers were certainly threatened. Uh, later, the uh, Nobel Peace Prize Committee committee widely, wisely chose uh, John Hume and David Trimble. Uh, and uh, they were right. Without John Hume, there would not have been a negotiation of the type that occurred. And without David Trimble, there would not have been an agreement of the type that was reached. And so they both deserve enormous credit, as, as did the other political leaders. Uh, I mentioned some of the SDLP leaders along with John Hume with, with the unionist David Trimble had uh, read Sir, now Sir Reg MP, yep. uh, Ken McGuinness, uh, quite, a, quite a large number of able, uh, strong and effective political leaders. Uh, now, uh, the Alliance Party, which was and remains the only party that seeks support across community, had outstanding leadership uh, uh, John Alderdice, who later became the first speaker of the Northern Ireland Assembly, was, a, as you will recall, Bertie, a yeah. very mm -hmm. effective voice. But in addition, uh, 
when the process was first established that led to the talks, the the government officials uh, in, in the UK and Ireland rather ingeniously uh, said that the, the eligibility to enter into the forum and then subsequently into the talks would be for the top 10 parties in Northern Ireland. And that enabled some of the smaller parties to get into the talks, notably David Irvine and Gary McMichael, who we've already discussed, but also notably the Northern Ireland Women's Alliance and the the women led by uh, Monica McWilliams and Pearl Sager, both outstanding leaders, uh, got into the talks. And although they were small and first, they had a tough time. Some of the male members of the talks were insulting, uh, demeaning to them. Uh, over time, I was able to establish a, a little better sense of order uh, and courtesy. And the women played a very important role in the ultimate uh, negotiations. So there, there, there's widespread, uh, I think, there's widespread room for uh, commending the leaders of all the political parties. And, and think about the after effects. Uh, Basically, the the SDLP went into a period of decline and has been superseded by Sinn Féin. The Ulster Unionists went into a period of decline, have been superseded by the Democratic Unionist Party. Now, uh, as you know, and as we've discussed already, the DUP walked out of the talks when Sinn Féin entered in 1997. But... There were continuing difficulties. Uh, the process collapsed in July of 1999 when uh, uh, and you and uh, uh, Blair called and asked if I would return. I did for a period of several months. We were able to get it back on track. That was in significant part over the issue of decommissioning. And then later in 2006, uh, further talks were conducted at St. Andrews in Scotland. The DUP got into those talks, and as a consequence of that, entered the process. The uh, the government was established uh, in a way that uh, led to uh, uh, DUP uh, nominating the first minister of Northern Ireland, the phrase that we would think of as prime minister, but because of the power sharing, it was the first minister and a deputy first minister, the largest party got the first minister and then the largest party on the other side got the deputy minister and uh, Dr. Paisley became uh, the first minister, served with Martin McGuinness, who had been uh, a very, very effective uh, Sinn Féin leader along with Jerry Adams. Uh, Dr. Paisley was followed by uh, Peter Robinson, a, a very intelligent and effective negotiator in, in negotiations while the DUP was in it, and then served as the leader. Peter was followed by Arlene Foster and now by Jeffrey Donaldson. Now they're encountering difficulties now. Uh, and, and my appeal to them, to the current political leaders of Northern Ireland and the governments of Ireland and the UK is to demonstrate the same degree of courage, vision, and strength that their predecessors demonstrated in 1998. And actually, the circumstances, the threats, the dangers in 1998 were much greater than they are now. The issues were many more. They were far more complicated. And yet they were able to come to an agreement. Now, the agreement is imperfect as are all human efforts, as are all human beings, as are all human institutions. We, we, we don't achieve perfection. None of us personally are free of error. No institution, no, no man-made institution is, never makes a mistake. We all make mistakes. The agreement was a political compromise. It didn't resolve every issue. As you will recall, Bertie, we deferred specifically to the future issues that we are unable 
to resolve, notably policing and the justice system. Those were dealt with later by separate groups. But it was the best that could be done at the time. And most importantly, it established what I think is permanent and what I hope and pray remains permanent. And that is two factors, power sharing between the two groups. John Hume's vision always was of a Northern Ireland where unionists and nationalists could live together in peace, sharing a common future. And that really is of absolutely critical importance. And second most important issue is that differences which remain uh, are resolved by democratic and peaceful means, not by uh, the use of violence. In Northern Ireland, there remain deep differences. But I ask the rhetorical question, what society, what country, what nation is free of differences and disagreements? A few years ago, I made one of my many trips to Northern Ireland, and I met with a group of reporters who were very negative in their questioning. You know, things are terrible. This was right about the time of Brexit and all of the challenges that were occurring. And I said, oh, it's terrible here in Northern Ireland. You know, people are still in disagreement. Uh, and and they asked me about it. And I said, look, I just came from the United States. And I came through London. I said, we in the United States have got so much deep division that no American uh, should be preaching to others about how to get along. Uh, and in the UK, they were uh, uh, high emotion, it still is, over the Brexit issue. So every society has problems. The reality of human life is that the solution to every problem contains within it the seeds of a new problem. And it ripens over time, and you have to deal with it at that time. So. I don't think there's any way that you or I now or anybody else outside can suggest and impose an agreement on the political leaders of Northern Ireland and the people of Northern Ireland. They have to come up with it themselves. And I'll conclude with one comment, Bertie, one final comment on this point. When the negotiations began in June of 1996, I said to the delegates on the first day, if we are ever to reach agreement, it must be your agreement. I said, there. I don't come here with an American peace plan. There is no Clinton plan. There is no Mitchell plan. There is no Irish government plan. There is no UK government plan. It has to be your agreement. And when we presented the final package to them on the morning of April 10th, 1998, nearly two years later, I repeated that to the parties, both orally and in writing. I said to them, every single word in this agreement has been written or spoken by someone from Northern Ireland. This is your agreement. It's not mine. It's not the Irish governments. It's not the British governments. This is the political parties of Northern Ireland. Now, the two governments, Ireland and the UK, are parties to the agreement, and their support is actually crucial to it, but essentially resolution of political problems must come from within, from the people of Northern Ireland and their political leaders. And I hope that the current political leaders will, will face these issues and resolve them in a practical, meaningful, workable way. Don't look for permanence. Don't look for perfection that doesn't exist in human affairs look for some way to maintain progress, to permit unionists and nationalists to live side by side in peace in Northern Ireland with hopefully education, housing, opportunity, and freedom for all parts of society. Thank you very much for those powerful words, um, George, and I think they're they're very relevant today. I, I always think the one item that we never discussed during all the years of the talks um, we, we never mentioned the word the UK leaving the European Union and um, it, it's strange now that 
the differences are, are not about Catholics or Protestants or about nationalists or loyalists it's, or unionists or Republicans. It's, um, it's all about Brexit and protocol and, you know, how you can trade within the single market and uh, at the same time be outside the single market. So they're, they're, I think your, your, words, your words that you have just given are, are very powerful for people to reflect on and see that there, there are solutions. And I, I feel equally strong as you do that the kind of issues that are on the agenda today are nothing like the complexities or the unsurmountable ones that, that we all had to deal with you know, back 20, 25 years ago. Um, I I suppose George is one one one. Um, we're getting near the the end of 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 our of our time, and I really appreciate that you you've given me well over an an hour, and really appreciate your your views. I there was a a, a lovely story. Uh, well, there are two things I always remember. One, I remember you saying that you you'd always be happy coming back to Northern Ireland when people were discussing the, the issues of health and education and infrastructure and not talking about peace and conflict. And I always remember they were they were very important words and they're very relevant today because the executive and the institutions are not sitting at the moment. And every night on television, we see doctors and nurses and teachers talking about the problems that they they have. So I think people are reflecting back on you know what the agreement is about and why they need to do it, but the 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 story I'd like you to to tell. Um, I know all over the world, George, and you know this yourself. But the Irish people hold you very, very dearly for the work that you did. But you you told us a story about when you um, went back back home to Heather, went back to the family after Good Friday. You went for a a walk in the um, uh, in Central Park uh, on Easter Sunday. Um, and you ran into to some Irish people. Would you would you tell us that story again? Because it is it is I think for a young generation, um, yes. it, it 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 reflects for our younger people who weren't weren't even born when when you and I were were working together. Well, of course, uh, needless to say, the uh, my experience in Northern Ireland, while one of the greatest and most interesting parts of my life uh, placed a great strain on my family. I retired from the Senate in, uh, at the end of December of 1994, and I got married just a couple of weeks before that. And I told my wife, I'm finished with politics. I want to lead a normal life. Being Senate Majority Leader of the United States is a very uh, demanding job. And I thought it would be difficult, particularly if we ended up raising a family, which we did. So uh, for me, it was uh, a, a both tremendously interesting, in, in a curious way, tremendously fulfilling. As I mentioned earlier, my, my father's parents had been born in Ireland, but he never knew his parents, was adopted by a non-Irish family. And so I didn't have any sense of Irish heritage before I went there. And I, I, having now been there so much and enjoyed it so much and been treated so warmly, uh, I love Ireland. I love Northern Ireland. I enjoy being there, uh, that I kind of feel that uh, uh, an internal void that I didn't even know existed has been filled. And I, I have some sense of the, the heritage of my, my father's family. But uh, because of this difficulty back and forth, uh, my wife gave birth to our son uh, in October of 1997, just when things were going very badly. And they proceeded to get worse, as we've already described, before we came back and got the agreement. But in the closing days of those intense discussions, I, I said repeatedly to the party leaders of Northern Ireland, this is going to be over this weekend, one way or the other. And I'm leaving. And Prime Minister Holker is leaving, and General Shaston is leaving. And if we don't get an agreement, you will be left here to try to explain to the people you represent how you, you could not get an agreement. And I, I, I said, and, and then 
to guarantee you I got to leave. I promised my wife that uh, I'd be back on Easter Sunday, uh, which was April 12th, to uh, take her for a walk in Central Park. We, at that time, lived uh, in an apartment in New York City uh, uh, right next to uh, Central Park. And that was one of our favorite things to do, to take nice walks. It's a beautiful park. Not nearly as large as Phoenix Park in Dublin or mm-hmm. as the others uh, in London, uh, Hyde Park, but very nice. And uh, so we, uh, I, I, and I actually showed them the plane ticket, both back then, 30 before electronics took over. And then you, you, you get a paper ticket in advance to go on an airplane. So I had a ticket to fly to from uh, Belfast to London to New York on that Saturday. Uh, and uh, so I did, and we got up, my wife and I, at Easter morning at breakfast, and then we took our, by then, our, our, uh, our boy who was about, uh, I don't know, six or eight months old, I strapped him on one of those carriers, and we walked into Central Park, and, and the very first person we encountered, we hadn't taken 10 steps into the park when a woman walked up to me, and she said, I'm from Northern Ireland, and I want to thank you for what you did. I said, my God, what an unbelievable coincidence. I've run into someone from Northern Ireland, the first person I meet in Central Park on Easter Sunday. And then by a further incredible coincidence, uh, about uh, 15 years later, uh, I spoke at a conference on conflict resolution in Los Angeles, California. And when I finished, the same woman came up to me and reminded me of who she was and she had, she had by then emigrated to the United States, was living in Los Angeles and working on conflict resolution. So I like to say that Northern Ireland not only, hopefully, was able to have enduring peace, but also are spreading it around the world. Well, I think that's definitely true, George. And the Good Friday Agreement, as you and I know, it's it's now discussed, debated and lectured on in every university across most of the world and uh, it, it, it's quite amazing the impact it's had. But George, I want to personally thank you very, very much for uh, taking part in this. I think this will be a, a very good series and very good record for for the current generation but for the rising generation and our, our young people and uh, for you to give so much time and your thoughts and um, you, you've been a, a, a great friend and a, a great person to work with and I think Irish people everywhere in the world really thank and appreciate you for all that you did and for the interest that you still maintain to this day so uh, to you George Mitchell my, my thanks Thank you very much Bertie it's been a great pleasure for me to be here with you to share with you uh, my memories of those events and uh, uh, to acknowledge and recognize the enormous contribution uh, by you personally uh, to the success of those talks. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here.